Well, we're continuing our Reformed Foundation series. Um, having completed our look at the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation, we now begin another key topic, uh, which will be on uh, covenant theology. Covenant theology. Covenant theology is an essential theology that must be known. We must be sound in covenant theology. It truly is of the utmost importance. Uh, Why is that? Well, it's because this covenant structure is what we see on the pages of Scripture really all over the place. And the fact of the matter is, is um, you will not be able to escape the significance of covenant theology. Uh, Covenant, uh, this covenant structure um, is the way that God has chosen uh, to uh, be in relationship to his creation. We are covenant creatures uh, through and through. Um, And it is through this covenant arrangement, ultimately, that God has united himself to his creation, we could say, both uh, salvifically and even from a common grace perspective, which is really what we see like in the Noahic covenant. Um, what we ultimately see is a number of covenants. Uh, what are the different covenants that we see in Scripture? What's that? So the Edemic, uh, the Edemic covenant um, is also really, you could say, the covenant of works or the creation covenant. Uh, what are some others? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. Um, the Abrahamic is also known as really the covenant of promise the covenant of promise what else we got the davidic uh davidic covenant uh, mosaic so he said mosaic yep so you have the mo uh, mosaic covenant which is really what we often refer to as the old covenant what else covenant of redemption that's right this is referred to uh, in various forms, even as like the eternal covenant, uh, everlasting covenant. Um, how about the Noahic covenant? Uh, Bavink refers to this one as the covenant of nature um, uh, and so forth. Um, we're missing a key one. The new covenant, the new covenant. <laughs> okay. Uh, the new covenant, uh, that is also really referred to as the covenant of grace. Um, some, if you read Pink and so forth, he'll refer to it as the Messianic covenant. Uh, he says he does that, at least in his book, for purposes of kind of uh, like alliteration, how he's kind of moving through the different covenants, so on and so forth. So seven covenants have been listed. Um, they can be broken down various ways. Um, what are we focusing on, uh, given that this is a four-week series? Uh, we're going to focus on the covenant of redemption. Uh, we're going to focus on Uh, the covenant of works, and we're going to focus on the new covenant or covenant of grace primarily. Uh, This will be the uh, layout for at least the next three weeks. And then the fourth week, the plan is to take that, uh, what we kind of looked at, especially in regards to the covenant of grace, and kind of see where do we see like grace in these covenants, kind of throughout each of these covenants. Um, So that's that's the layout. And what's interesting is in each of these, really what we have is a progressive revelation of, of uh, the Messiah to come. Different you know, distinctions and descriptions and information is provided in each of these covenants kind of as they come 
uh, in history and as they are given. So before we go, we got to actually get into some what we could call covenant basics. Uh, covenant basics, and this quite simply is, right, what is a covenant? We have to understand, we have to define covenant. We don't need to get necessarily into the Hebrew and the Greek behind it. Um, that can be a, a further study, but just what is a basic definition of covenant? An agreement, okay? So we could say it's, it's uh, an agreement. What's that? That's right. So the direction I'm kind of going is using um, O. Palmer Robertson's definition. He provides a very straightforward definition. He basically says a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Um, and so this is kind of the way that we'll work through this just for, uh, you know, simplicity's sake. Um, sovereignly administered. But you're right, it is an agreement. It's an agreement that binds us together. There is a bond. There is a, an, an arrangement there uh, where it commits people one to another. At least as it's worked out in history, we see various covenants uh, all over Scripture where they, you know, they dug a well or you know, whatever the case may be, and they were making a covenant together. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that what we're talking about when it comes to the divine covenants, we're talking about um, how God, uh, in a sense, uh, is in a relationship, a binding relationship uh, with his creation. Um, and even in some sense, there is a, like a legality, uh, legality to it. It's legal in nature. There is a requirement. There is oaths taken. Uh, so there is, a, there is a covenant obligation that is present such that if that obligation is not met, what happens? Curses. Right, there's curses involved. And so uh, you see that there are attached to the covenants blessing uh, and curses. Uh, what some would even say, there's a life and death aspect to covenant creation, to the forming of a covenant, um, such that it's not something that is uh, entered into lightly. It is quite a you know, formal, serious, solemn uh, arrangement. Um, we see oaths um, being taken. They're either made verbally. Um, uh, there's often um, signs provided where there's eating of a meal, a giving of a gift. Uh, the cutting of a covenant is the language that we'll be looking at here uh, shortly. Uh, that's what ultimately to make a covenant means. When you read in Scripture... Uh, to make a covenant or made a covenant, what that is essentially saying is uh, cut a covenant. Does anybody know, you know the, the, like the important aspect to this particular phrase, this cutting aspect? It relates to really how covenants were formed, this idea of being in blood. So, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, uh, 10, what do I have here, 10 through 21. What do we see take place there? Right. The animals split in two, and then what happens? 
What's that? Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a smoking oven and a flaming torch, and those go between those pieces. When, you know, whoever was to pass between those pieces is taking upon the covenant obligation upon themselves to see it through, such that if they did not keep that covenant, they did not fulfill that obligation, those curses, that life-death aspect would come upon them. And so it's pretty significant in the Abrahamic covenant when you see the Lord pass through, he is taking that upon himself, which should really provide us with great comfort, knowing that in the promise that was given, uh, really even in the covenant of redemption and so forth, that the, the inter-Trinitarian aspect, uh, they have taken upon themselves uh, to, to have a plan of redemption, to, to work out this plan of redemption, and you see it re- revealed in these various covenants. And the comforting thing to us is what? ties into everything we've been looking at these last couple months. It's that salvation is not of us. No matter what, you know, I say no matter what we do, it's not dependent upon us. It is truly uh, the Lord who has undertaken uh, this work, um, both in the promise of the one to come, ultimately in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and so on and so forth. And so the cutting of a covenant, there was a bond in blood uh, and, and that was symbolic of the splitting of these animals. That was generally um, often how uh, the covenants were established. Interestingly enough, on the flip side, if you were to look at uh, Jeremiah 34, um, I think it's 15 and 18. Jeremiah 34, 15 and 18. This is like the, the other side. Uh, the Lord has, is now confronting them, you could say. Um, because why? Well... Uh, they passed through, uh, they passed between the parts uh, of the animal. And the Israelites doing that were taking upon themselves the covenant obligation. Um, And guess what? They didn't uphold it. And as a result of that, what you see is they will now be given into the hands of their enemies. This curse becomes a reality for them. Um, And so that's just an interesting, you know, here we see, you know, the Lord takes it upon himself This is an example of when man takes it upon himself, the covenant obligation, sure enough, through and through, we fail. And uh, and we ultimately see it even in the covenant of works, which we'll, Lord willing, look at next week, where uh, man had an obligation and they did not, uh, or he did not uh, follow through on that. And that obviously uh, led to sin entering into the world. Uh, Robertson does say, once the covenant relationship has been entered, and this just shows the serious nature of, a, of, of covenant making, uh, once it has been entered, nothing less than the shedding of blood may relieve the obligations incurred in the event of covenantal violation. And so, you know, immediately we think of covenantal violation, shedding of blood. Um, you think of the animal that was shed upon the, the breaking of the, the covenant of works uh, and the clothing of Adam and Eve and so on and so forth, but ultimately that showing forth to Christ and what was ultimately needed in him, uh, the shedding of his blood. Yeah. So would you say that, like you said, oftentimes the covenant was made in blood, but there are a couple where it's, where a couple where they're not necessarily made in blood. Yeah. Different covenants maybe contain more things in particular. Yeah. Yeah, 
I would say in general. That's why I said generally or often. Um, I wouldn't say that we always see it. But even in those covenants, um, I'm forgetting the references because I did read up on this. Uh, references in Scripture where it even speaks of even in the forming of the Davidic covenant, the oaths taken. Um, and so there's some aspect where you, it's, it's not in those specific, you know, 2 Samuel 7, but you see later where it refers to, uh, you know, that aspect. And then obviously you see, because even like the, the, the Hebrew word isn't necessarily present even in Genesis when that covenant was formed, but what you ultimately see is uh, the covenant components there whereby it would lead us to believe that, yes, a true covenant was formed. You look at the fact that the minute it was broken, boom, judgment comes in. Um, and so we see these different components um, that, so that's why I say this is a good general working definition. If we were doing a full-on, like, deep dive on covenant theology, there's other ways that this can be broken down and expanded upon. Yeah. So it's also sovereignly administered. So so the sovereignly administered aspect, right, is going to relate to the fact, especially in the divine covenants, that they are unilateral. It is God condescending and revealing himself to man. It is not equals making a covenant here. Not equals. If you and I made a covenant, we're talking on an equal basis. Uh, that would be a bilateral covenant. It's each side covenanting. covenanting. But here you have uh, sovereign administration of this covenant. Um, so like I said, the implication ultimately at the end of the day is that uh, we cannot get around the fact that we are covenant creatures. And, you know, Brother Landon and I were even talking about this aspect that when we evangelize, we need to remind the world around us that they are in covenant with God. Um, sometimes we even forget that. Uh, there's nobody that's outside of covenant with God. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. Plain and simple. Plain and simple, but you get the idea. Um, but there's a need to remind them of that. Um, so this uh, covenant establishment uh, doesn't just have its place in time. Um, meaning it's, it's not just something that we see all of a sudden implemented in history. Um, but ultimately, we see that it has its place uh, in eternity with what is referred to as the pactum salutis. Also referred to as, I mean, you can call it the pact of salvation. You can call it the covenant of redemption. Um, what is uh, the pactum salutis? Do we see it in Scripture? Genesis 3, we see the promise of the seed to come. Uh, do we see the phrase covenant of redemption anywhere in Scripture? No. The specific phrase covenant of redemption or, um, you know, I mean, you see it maybe with some everlasting covenant, uh, council of peace. You think of like a Zechariah 6. Um, but the specific phrase itself, uh, we don't find. That shouldn't give us any true consternation because much like Trinity, that specific word, that, but that doctrine is present. Um, so though the word or the phrase isn't there, what we can do is we can look at a number of scriptures and really piece together what the pactum salutis consisted of. Um, so what I hope you'll find is that as we go through this, this is heavily scripture laden. 
Uh, we need to hear from Scripture, not from me. And so what does Scripture say you know, on these issues? So when we're referring to the Pactum Salutis, what are we ultimately referring to? Uh, well, we're saying that it's a covenant that has its origin in eternity. Has its origin in eternity. Um, that it was established before the foundation of the world. And so what we're ultimately you know, kind of trying to peer into is that eternal counsel of God. Um, we see this eternal purpose that has been established. Ephesians 3.11 uh, is one area. Um, I guess I should give the... Ephesians 3.11. Ephesians 3.11 says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see that there's an eternal purpose. Uh, things aren't just haphazard. Things aren't just random. Uh, but he is a God of order. And uh, there is an eternal purpose. We see this eternal purpose um, alluded to or specifically referenced in various places all throughout Scripture. A couple other examples. Luke 22.22. 22. Luke twenty two twenty two. He says, For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Where was it determined? When was it determined? Um, was it in time and things had kind of taken place and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is what we're going to do? No, this would end up uh, ultimately referring to um, eternity. Um, Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so you see there's a predetermined plan, there's the foreknowledge of God. Um, the text that is often referred to in support of this uh, thought is uh, Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. We don't have the time to fully exegete this passage um, but I would highly recommend it to your study. You can look at books like Klein's Glory in Our Midst, uh, Fesco's uh, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. He's got a section on that as well, uh, and certainly any uh, other commentaries. But what we ultimately see here, um, it, there's kind of like people are divided. Uh, Bavink would say that in this particular passage, um, it's doing nothing more. It, it, it does not have reference to the eternal council or a covenant arrangement. Um, it's only showing that in the Messiah there is a unity of kingship and priesthood and that he will promote peace among his people. So let's turn there real quick. I'll read the passage just so you know what I'm referring to. But like I said, I would highly recommend um, like a deeper dive on this particular passage. So Zechariah 6, 12 and 13 says, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, uh, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Uh, that's Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And your... Notes there may also say between the two of them. Um, the two of them, uh, many have um, commented on, is that it's Yahweh and Christ. Um, and not this idea. It's, it's, what is certainly presented here is king-priest. And so when you read this in, in line with like Psalm 110, for example, 
you see that same king-priest aspect and this, uh, you know, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and so on and so forth, where you see this covenantal uh, picture being uh, presented there uh, in conjunction with really the Davidic covenant, going back to 2 Samuel 7 and the, the kingly nature of this individual. So you see this covenant connection, um, and this is what uh, Klein says, at least, um, and we'll leave it at this. Um, Klein ultimately says, what Zechariah 6.13e is, so that's the last part of the verse, is declaring in particular is that the exaltation of the branch to fellowship and joint reign with Yahweh on his throne is the outworking of previous covenantal commitments of the two to one another. And so there you see Klein's position. He would say that this is in fact uh, referring to this eternal uh, covenant, this eternal purpose. Secondly, what we'd want to look at too is um, the, uh, what, what did it contain? Well, what we're looking at as far as what were like the, what was the contents or what was it about, right? And ultimately it was about redemption. It contained the full plan of redemption. Like I said, it wasn't something that was uh, reactionary. It wasn't, okay, man fell and now we have to come up with a plan of how man's going to be saved, But the Lord, knowing the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, uh, knew that um, there would be one uh, who would need to be sent uh, and to uh, secure salvation uh, for man. Um, All of the details, all of the necessities, fully established. Nothing later developed. Fully established. And then uh, we can say the third point is it is... uh, inter-Trinitarian. Inter-Trinitarian. So, obvious basic question, what does it mean, inter-Trinitarian? Okay, so it's between, uh, between the triune God. Who's involved in this? Right, so you have Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. If you read certain individuals, they say that this covenant was essentially established between the Father and the Son. Uh, That is, the Father and the Son covenanting covenanting together uh, in the plan of salvation. And I get what, I mean, right, the Son is the one who is sent. We're going to look at this in a little bit of detail. The Son is the one who is sent. Uh, the Father is the one who sins. I think we all understand that. But um, I am of the mindset that it does include all three. It, it has to. Um, and so I only bring that out just to, to point to you to what some people say. Um, if you come across it when you read and study Um, But I am of the mindset that it does include all three uh, members, and we'll get into this uh, shortly. But for now, um, as it relates to this covenant of redemption, we actually are given what you could identify as a covenantal dialogue um, between the Father and the Son. And so this is where you can see, uh, in many ways, 
you know, where, where you see, like, I mean, these, I guess you could say in some sense, are primary, if you would like, where there's the Father and the Son. You see they're, they're very prominent in, in some sense, but then you also see other places where he's anointed with the Spirit. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's kind of the direction we're going. So let's look at Isaiah, um, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Uh, this is a passage um, that will help lay some of the groundwork um, and give us a glimpse into the eternal <laughs> counsel. Uh, we cannot read the whole chapter. We don't have time for that. Um, but we'll look. I think the first six verses or so uh, will cover um, what we are um, going to, at least just, just laying the, the, the foundation for what we're heading into. Isaiah 49, 1 through 2. So we'll kind of read these in pieces just to kind of break down Uh, what we see here. So he says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And so here we see Christ recognizing and acknowledging his calling, his set-apartness, we could say, from the womb for a particular work. He was, he was designated uh, for a particular purpose. Isaiah 49.3, he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Here we have the identification of Christ as the covenant servant. Uh, he is the servant of this covenant of redemption. Um, in many ways, if you think about the relation, and we'll get into this, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, but if you think about the relation of the covenant of redemption to the covenant of grace, it is really Christ uh, that is the hinge between these two. Uh, that in his uh, uh, role here, um, the, he is a party to this covenant, and he is the servant of this covenant. He is the one who must fulfill this covenant. Um, Whereas in the new covenant, he's a mediator of a better covenant. And so we see the two aspects there, covenant servant, covenant mediator, one person, Christ. Okay? Um, he was set apart by his father. He's the father's servant. Isaiah 49.4, But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Here we see there's a reward. There is something due to him. And so this goes back to, I had it up here before, but the covenant blessing curse aspect that upon the completion of this work, there's a reward that's due to him. And we'll look at, at this a little bit uh, in a little bit when we consider each person's role uh, directly. Even his reference to God as his God brings light to this covenant arrangement. Um, Pink says, every time our blessed Redeemer utters the words, my God, he gave expression to his covenant standing before the Godhead, before his Father. Um, and then Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, we read this. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, is it, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so what we see is that the servant 
upon completion, he has given an inheritance. And this inheritance doesn't just consist of ethnic Israel, not just the tribes of Jacob and the preserved ones of Israel, but we see that in fact this inheritance is going to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, even here, this is what was promised to him. And so we see that ultimately is the father entering into a covenant with the son, such that he sends his son, the son willingly goes, and he gives his life for the elect. In many ways, this follows uh, the definition, right? There's a bond, there's a covenant arrangement between them, there's a blood aspect to it, his blood, he's going to have to give his life uh, to, for the elect. Um, and then obviously there's a subsequent blessing uh, that follows. Uh, in many ways, uh, he became a covenant breaker on our behalf that we would become or be seen as covenant keepers um, in him. So, now it's impossible to discuss this uh, without looking at the Trinity. Why? Well, we just identified this as intertrinitarian in nature. And so we need to look at uh, these parties that are involved, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, but Vink states in regards to this pact of salvation that it makes known to us the relationships in life of the three persons in the divine beings, um, that it's a covenantal life, a life consummate of consummate self-consciousness and freedom. Here within the divine being, the covenant flourishes to the full. And I think what he's conveying there is that there, there's a, all members of the Godhead are, in a sense, like all in, all for each other, um, willingly um, playing or fulfilling uh, their role. So as we consider this, we've got to make a distinction uh, about the Trinity. There's the ontological Trinity. We've looked at this numerous times. What is the ontological Trinity? That's right. So there's three persons, one essence, right? Uh, three persons, one uh, essence, one being, uh, co-equal, uh, co-eternal, so on and so forth, right? No subordination here. What's the other distinction? Economical? How is that also, what is that also called as? Functional. It is because or through the covenant of redemption in particular that we have an economic and functional aspect to the Trinity. Uh, because it is this aspect that speaks of the, the, the members of the Godhead, their roles as it relates to this covenant of redemption. Uh, what each uh, member of the Godhead is to do, remember it's not just random, uh, the, the Holy Spirit wasn't sent to go procure salvation. Uh, the Son is the one who was sent. The Son didn't send, the Father sent. And so uh, we want to look at aspects of uh, their various roles um, aspects of the various roles. So I've mentioned some of this. What was the Father's role? Well, as the first member of the Godhead, it is often attributed to him that the plan of redemption originated with him. Now, you've got to understand, we're making a, a distinction between, you know, here's the essence, the three in one, and then here's their roles as it relates to 
this plan of redemption. And so we're saying that this plan uh, originated uh, with the Father. The plan originated with the Father. Um, he knew the need, uh, if you will, the second Adam of a last Adam, that the first Adam would not um, uh, accomplish uh, the probationary period. And so he knew of a life-giving spirit that we read of in 1 Corinthians 15 to be sent uh, that needed to come. And so we know that the Father is the one who sends the Son. He sends the Son. Uh, he willingly sends his Son. That's an amazing aspect is that as he thinks of this and, and you know, kind of contemplates this plan as it were, there's a willingness, a true willingness to send his Son forth uh, to save his enemies, which is just remarkable. Um, we see this, for example, Isaiah 42.6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And so you see the giving of the Son as a covenant. Uh, what else does he do? He does elect, I, Yes, he, he does, yes, he does elect. Um, <laughs> I'm still working out this aspect, which I think, I think is prior to, actually. It's like the election is first. It's not based on anything else other than the Father's good pleasure. And so it's not, okay, I'm going to send my son, and then here's the elect necessarily. I'm thinking that's over and above. So that's why I hesitate. But you're right, he does. He is the one who elects. What does he give the son to do? Work. There's work that the son needs to do. Uh, what is this work that he needed to do? What's that? Okay, so there is a saving of the people that, uh, that is needed. Um, how was he to do that? Only the death on the cross? His life. What's that? Well, there's a submission to the Father. And so this is where you see subordination. No subordination here. You see subordination here where he submits himself to his Father. He, even to the point where he says, my Father is greater than I. Um, and so it's in his role here in this covenant of redemption that you see a submission to the Father. So there's a submitting to the Father. There's the taking of a, the form of a, a servant, which we'll look at shortly. Um, but it's not just, it's his death, um, but it's the whole of his life. He needed to obey the law. As we read even in Matthew, it's like even at his, uh, I believe it's Matthew, but at his, at his baptism, he says, this is necessary. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. That's right. To fulfill all righteousness. And so there was a work, and so that he needed to do. And, and undertaking this work, or as part of this covenant, he becomes both the surety and the federal head. He becomes both the surety and the federal head, which we will look into uh, shortly as well. But that's a key aspect. Um, the surety is key. Um, maybe I'll just address it now, but reference it later. But what is a surety? A surety, not a surety, but a guarantee. Yeah, it is one that guarantees. And so what he's doing by being a surety is saying that I'm taking upon, like taking on myself this covenant obligation to complete 
this task or whatever the case may be. What about a federal head? Why is that important? That's right. So in his work, he represents us uh, such that his work, as we looked at when we considered justification, is imputed to us. Uh, it is through that work that we are made righteous uh, by grace through faith. Um, so yeah, these are two key aspects, a surety and a federal head. Um, but in addition to that, he promises, um, there's promises that are given. Uh, look with me, if you would, at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I can't read all this because time is quickly going, but Psalm 89 is another um, passage to, to look into more closely, but verses 19 through 29. Um, maybe I will read this one. He says, once, once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. So you see there's a strengthening there. These are some of the promise aspects that we see. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him in my name, and in my name uh, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall, um, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. And so you see these promises that are given. He says, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. We even see this passage covering both success, guaranteed, and reward given. Uh, his descendants um, will be established forever, as will his reign. As will his reign. So the son's role um, it's one thing for the father to be willing to send, but that doesn't just make, that's not uh, fully sufficient. What else is needed? Uh, the son uh, willing, we've looked at this, I've mentioned this, the, the willingness to be sent, the willingness to be sent is also uh, needed. And that is ultimately what we have um, Christ willing to go uh, that's exactly what he agrees to do. Uh, he willingly subjects himself to his father's will and the work that was given to him. So we looked at some aspect of the work, but another aspect was to become incarnate, to take on flesh. Uh, Hebrews uh, 10, 5-9 uh, displays heavy covenantal language. Um, here we read, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And so in some sense, we see the father's role as well, like preparing a body for Christ, but a body you have prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And so, uh, we see his willingness uh, to do that will, his willingness to, to, to do the work given to him. We see a great summary of this in Philippians 2. 
Now, this is a passage we are all familiar with, if you want to turn there. Um, We would see here, I believe, in summary form, we could say, the outworking of this covenant of redemption. Uh, We see here the covenant servant obligation. We see covenant obedience and ultimately covenant reward, or at least an aspect of the covenant reward. Um, The covenant servant, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the covenant servant is seen here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And so we see that this entailed taking the form of a servant, the willingness to lay aside glory, to take on, uh, it's, it's, even as Emilio's reference, it's, it's an emptying by addition, by this taking on aspect of this servant uh, form. And it was a laying aside. It wasn't ripped or wrestled from him, but the willingness is present. That is something I cannot emphasize enough because if it's not willing, then it's not sacrifice in that sense. Instead, it's something being taken from you. Um, so... Um, Covenant obedience. We see being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see that there was obedience to this covenant plan of redemption, such that the reward then is given to him. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's one aspect, name above all names, exalted, uh, being praised. Um, But we also see other covenant rewards mentioned elsewhere. Uh, John 17, 4 and 5. John 17, 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you, gave, which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so there was this glory that was to be restored um, g- since he had accomplished the work given to him. And then you see also this idea of the inheritance again. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so what we ultimately see through all of this is truly how you can piece together this covenant of redemption uh, doctrine um, in passages that we're all familiar with, but you start to see them, you know, in in a different light maybe as far as, you know, the covenant servant, covenant obligation, covenant reward, uh, things of that nature. But what about the Spirit's role? Remember, a lot of people think of it being primarily between father and son, and that may be true or only between father and son. Um, But I do think that uh, this is Trinitarian through and through in this covenant of redemption. Um, So what was the Spirit's role, do you think? Uh, that's true, he does do that. The way I've distinguished this, I think, is the difference between covenant of redemption and covenant of grace. Um, so uh, what I'm thinking is, is that the Spirit does quicken, but that's his role, if you will, under the covenant of grace, uh, where he regenerates and makes alive and applies and seals and so on and so forth. 
in the covenant of redemption, what role does the Spirit play specifically tied to um, you know, salvation and so forth? Well, he sanctifies us, right? Okay, but we're talking about covenant of redemption. So let me, let me toss one out, okay? The incarnation. What was his role in the incarnation? That's right, the overshadowing uh, by which you know, Christ was then conceived. Um, so we see, uh, that's from Luke one thirty-five, right? So there's a role in the incarnation. How about the anointing? So what we're ultimately talking about, remember the class that Emilio had going for a bit, like the, the, the spirit in the life of Christ? We're kind of looking at that here, okay? So yes, he sanctifies us. Yes, he uh, quickens us. Um, but here, we're looking at, okay, what role in this covenant of redemption? Well, the anointing. Uh, this is what we see in Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant, there's that language again, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And this anointing, as we see from verses, really the, the rest of one all the way through three, speaks of the purpose of this anointing. What was it for? To accomplish the work. To accomplish the work. And so we see that he is the consummate one who truly walked by the Spirit. We're commanded to walk by the Spirit so we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Christ is the consummate one who walked in the full power of the Spirit. The full power of the Spirit. And so there's an anointing uh, that is present there. Um, if you remember, even the Spirit is the one who led him into the wilderness. Uh, and then it was in the power of the Spirit that he comes out of the wilderness, right, and enters Galilee and begins to proclaim the gospel. And so we see uh, this aspect of the Spirit's work. And then one final one, his uh, resurrection. Who raised Christ from the dead? That's right. All three, that too is a Trinitarian work, but Romans 8, 11, it says, but if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And so we see that from a covenant of redemption perspective, the Spirit's work, um, I'm not saying it's limited to these three. These are the three that um, are here, but uh, incarnation, anointing, and resurrection. Um, we'll get into now, because I am out of time, so I can't even talk about the covenantal relationship between covenant of redemption and covenant of grace. That'll probably be what I start with uh, in two weeks when we look at that. But um, any questions on any of this with just a couple minutes left? That's right. That's right. And so in, in some sense, you almost get a visible form of that anointing. Um, yeah. Anything else? Clear as mud, like Amelia likes to say, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, man, there's a lot. Um, I would say any good systematics, so you can get uh, Bavink. Um, Bavink has a section on the Pactum Salutis, um, but Arthur W. Pink has a section specifically on uh, this, this everlasting covenant. Um, J.V. Fesco, uh, the Trinity, and the Covenant of Redemption. We had a copy in the bookstore. They're gone. They're gone. Um, what's that? The Christ, oh, from Adam to Christ. 
Yeah. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson, Christ of the Covenants, he walks through each of these covenants. Uh, like I said, he calls them maybe different things, like, you know, this is a covenant of creation here. Um, but any solid systematic, though, as well. Um, Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, if you think you can read it. Um, <laughs> maybe that's why you need time. You've got to decipher it. Um, okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, continue our worship.